if you think about like the woke mobs, right? And you see these videos of university students screaming every possible demand at the university administrators, ranging from wanting their physical safety to be enhanced to their emotional safety being enhanced to, you know, better food in the cafeteria. It's like everything, right? At a certain point, if the demands of voice are so severe, it's going to actually just force the administrators to spend all of their time fake signaling responsiveness to these demands. And it's actually going to make the output of the organization over time decline even faster. All right. So thanks for coming out today, everyone. I have prepared a brief lecture on uh, what I think is a very important and very, very fun book, really, um, Exit Voice and Loyalty by the social scientist Albert Hirschman. And so I'm going to give a short lecture on this for about 30 minutes. I'll speak on just what I think are kind of the most important ideas from this book and with a bit of a gloss on what it has to say about contemporary institutional decline. And I think that's basically one of the reasons why this book is particularly you know, exciting and important right now and why it's actually quite widely talked about, if only implicitly, is precisely because for a lot of us, there seems to be some kind of pattern of significant institutional decline in the Western countries today. So that's going to be obviously the, the looming question behind the analysis of this book. And it's going to be what we're trying to bring the analysis to in one way or another. So I'll probably speak for just about 30 minutes or so. I'll start by talking about some of the uh, kind of basic prefatory ideas um, that one needs to be aware of to really understand uh, the, the scope of the book and what the book is trying to do and not do. So we'll start with some of the, the prefatory aspects of the book that are important to understand for really understanding the, the main ideas. And then, of course, we'll move on to the main ideas. And many of you might be familiar with the main idea, at least in some kind of cartoonish form. Maybe some of you have read the book and you're already quite sophisticated. I'm assuming most of you probably just have a passing familiarity of, of, of one kind or another. And of course, the three terms of the title, exit voice and loyalty, refer to the first two refer to options or ways of responding to institutional decline. And the third one actually is not an option uh, or a way of responding uh, so much as it is a kind of conditioning variable that determines whether or not one will choose exit or voice, the amount of loyalty one has, that is. So we'll break down exactly what Hirschman means by those three crucial terms. And then we'll even look uh, kind of under the hood of uh, the model, because what he does is he uses these terms and concepts to build a kind of informal game theoretic model. Um, by game theoretic, I mean, uses equations and, and basic kind of mathematical structure. But by informal, I mean, it's it's just rough intuitions. He's not like proving things mathematically and he's not, you know, doing, um, you know, complex computations. It's just using the, the methods of game theory to sketch out some informal intuitions. And so we'll, we're going to actually look under the hood of that model. We'll break out figure one in particular in the book is probably the most important graph that kind of shows visually the the implications of of his game theoretic model so we'll look we'll look at that closely and and try and i'll break it down for you if, if it's confusing for you um it's really quite interesting and this whole book is really quite i think profound and sophisticated and and just fun uh basically they don't write social science books like they used to this was a really interesting moment in social science the 60s and the 70s and even kind of the early 80s when social scientists were a different breed really you could be much more creative 
that this was a kind of um, very creative book. It, 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 if you notice when you were reading it, it doesn't necessarily prove anything. It's really just a collection of intuitions, a, a collection of possible ideas and hypotheses that he builds out into this kind of book length essay, really. Um, unfortunately, social scientists don't write books like this anymore, but it's a real it's a real treat, I think, and a real pleasure to go back to this time and, and read the, the big wigs of the time. And he was definitely a big wig of the time. So um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the book. And so that's a bit of a preface on what to expect today. And then of course, I'll end, I'll end the lecture with some comments on how I think all this applies to the contemporary institutional uh, context. Um, a, a brief word about Albert Hirschman as, as a man, as, as, a, as an individual. He's kind of one of these guys who has a, a kind of a incredible 20th century life. It, from He was born in 1915, if I recall correctly, a uh, German Jew, um, like many of the, the great you know, American thinkers of the 20th century. It's, it's German Jews who come over from you know, the, the, the persecution of the Jews in, in the 20th century in Europe. And so this guy basically, like many um you know interesting people fought um with the anarchists in spain against franco like hemingway and simone bay he actually went over and he actually saw conflict though a lot a lot of the the bourgeois intellectuals who went over to spain it was kind of a fashionable thing to do during the spanish civil war um a lot of them didn't really see action and they took kind of easy jobs on the side he he did actually um uh he had like wounds on the back of his neck from um from conflict i do believe and so then, you know, fast forward, he uh, flees Germany um, around 19 in the early 1930s. Um, like many people who you might know of, for instance, uh, Theodore Adorno and the, and the Frankfurt School, um, the Frankfurt School, Mark, uh, Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, uh, Walter Benjamin, they were all a little bit older than Hirschman. Hirschman was about um, not quite one whole generation um, younger, but um, about about 10 or 15 years, a little bit younger than the Frankfurt School generation, but they're all in this kind of big group that come over to America uh, as German Jews. And so, <clears throat> well, not Walter Benjamin, he didn't make it, or, you know, God bless him, but um, the, it was it was all one big kind of uh, motion over to the US. And all of these people are um, basically scrambling to find academic jobs or government jobs. And so that's that's basically the context um, uh, Albert Hirschman himself, basically he had some posts at universities, but he was actually spent most of his life, um, traveling and studying as working for government agencies, basically for the world bank and, and things like this. Um, he actually saw, uh, combat in world war II. He was all over the place, really, really traveled, um, and kind of practically engaged guy. So a lot of his research, like, uh, the stuff that, that come, that, you know, comes out in this book, most of his research and experiences is in uh, doing research abroad for different government agencies, basically. And so with that, just as background, um, like I said, he was writing at a time when so the, the academy was very different and, and social science um, institutions were very different. The norms of, of publishing and social science were very different. You know, this kind of, this kind of book um, that hopefully you all read for today, it basically wouldn't be publishable right now, not because it's bad or anything like that, but just because it doesn't um, make enough of a specific demonstrated contribution to a particular research literature. This is a, just a book of a smart guy who's social scientifically sophisticated, making a set of arguments um, on, on a theme. They're, they're kind of loosely connected. They're not, it's not, you know, this book is not like one grand thesis with a very uh, specific uh, 
uh, thesis that all of the rest of the book kind of demonstrates or supports. It's a collection of, of intuitions and, and ideas and mental models, basically. And today that just wouldn't, you know, th there's no home for that, basically. Everything has, now has to be a specific contribution to a literature, and it has to be really, really uh, powerfully demonstrated for it to be interesting or important to, to anyone, um, like, you know, a book, a book press or whatever. Now, that's just context. But um, so let's talk a little bit about the the book. I wanted to give you a look. That's just a little bit of uh, the sociological uh, kind of historical background uh, for for understanding how the, how the book came about. Now, the when you start reading the book, there's a few I would say key points at the very beginning that are the the key points to understand for the motivation of the book. The um, uh, how, how would I say the uh, the purpose and the goal of the book. And there, there are basically two points here I want to stress. The one is um, about this idea of irreparable lapses, uh, reparable versus irreparable lapses. And then it's this social bias against exit. That is, These are two really important points for us, I think, especially thinking about how this is going to apply to contemporary institutions. So what am I referring to? We'll just go in order. The first one, he says very clearly in the book that his framework is really only for thinking about reparable lapses. And by that, he means uh, reversible declines in, in organizational function. So the subtitle of the book is Responses to Decline in Firms, Organizations, and States. So at a very general high level, he's just basically asking what happens uh, from, from a kind of economic calculus perspective, what happens when an organization of any kind, he wants this to be as general as possible, starts breaking down. It's not functioning as well as it's supposed to. Output is decreasing or just functioning goes haywire. He's, he's purposely um, making the argument in a general way that can apply to economic organizations like corporations, seeing a drop in output, but also maybe labor unions or academic professional organizations seeing uh, a decrease in function, okay? So he wants his model to apply to all such declines in organizational function, let's call it. And he says very clearly his analysis is only going to make sense for organizational declines that are in principle uh, repairable. And even more specifically, to, to use some, some social science lingo, he, he basically invokes the distinction between random fluctuations and, and systematic fluctuations. And so what he's saying is that if there are systematic reasons, kind of exogenous, external, um, secular forces that are making an institution decline, then his analysis is, is not going to be relevant. And this is really, really uh, interesting and important because when we think about the, the, the challenges that contemporary institutions face, and we try to unpack why and how exactly there is this ubiquitous sense of organizational decline across Western institutions today, it's actually a pretty hard case to make that it's random short-term perturbations. Uh, it sure looks to me like systematic, long-term, exogenous forces that are causing the, the ubiquitous sense of organizational decline that we see today. And so if that is the case, then he's basically saying very explicitly at the beginning of the book that his framework isn't going to have that much utility for us trying to comprehend long-term secular forces that are breaking down institutions. Okay. So this is somewhat disappointing. This might even feel like a bit of a, um, a bit of a letdown because maybe some of you are here thinking like you really want to learn what this book has to say to apply it to contemporary institutions. And I'm, I'm here to kind of burst your bubble at the beginning in some way, not completely, but in some way by saying that um, there is a going to be a case to be made 
that not a lot of this analysis even applies. But in a way, that's an interesting observation, if nothing else. That's an interesting takeaway from this from this lecture, if nothing else, because it's a really important corrective to people who will want to use this book and, and cite these words and, and cite Hirschman's name to talk about the calculus of Exeter voice and in institutions today. Um, you know, if, if you think that it organizational decline today is due to long-term systemic forces, then this might be the most important thing you take away from today that, that people who cite this book are, are um, not understanding it correctly. Okay. So that's, that's the first thing, but having said that personally, I'm of the view that though I, though I, I do believe that much of what we're seeing today in, in the organizational decline across the West is due to systemic exogenous forces. I still just think that there's a lot of value in the intuitions and the, and the, the mental models of this book. And it's all very, very uh, uh, contextual and, and conditional, basically. So this is what I was saying before about how social science books used to be more interesting. It's not really trying to make uh, a super specific and uh, kind of uh, scoped claim. It's basically trying to give you uh, some ways of thinking about these things that I think are, are quite, quite generally applicable. So I'm of the opinion that having said that, and that's an important caveat, we're still going to be able to tease out insights that will indeed be applicable for specific contexts of institutions. Like maybe you'll have, you'll take some of the parameters from this book and you'll think, okay, how does this apply to my institution that I'm thinking about dealing with through Exeter voice? Um, I, there's still a lot of value here. So that's just a, that that's an important, important little, little distinction there that any, anyone who reads this book needs to uh, kind of note how important that is. Um, he's only really trying to deal with random short-term declines that are in principle fixable. All right. Um, all right. So that's, that's the one factor. And the second thing I just wanted to say is that it, this might be well known to people, but um, in my little lecture notes, I accumulated some of the, and I'll publish this as a blog post later, but I accumulated just some of the trends that people would invoke to think about, you know, the long-term kind of organizational dynamics of, of you know, U.S. Western institutions. Um, and it's things like, you know, if you, if you can, if you do survey research on people and ask them like how much they trust institutions from the seventies, it's basically gone downward for almost every single institution to some degree with the exception of military and the police, which has more or less kind of remained stagnant. In fact, trust in the military has somewhat increased. Um, but for every other big institution, it's gone down. Um, and, uh, you know, to some degree, you see declines in relig religiosity, um, secular long-term declines, which is a kind of way of, it's a proxy for like the decline of, of, of religious institutions in a way. Union membership down, down, down since the 70s, of course, and basically or organizational involvement in any institutions. This is like uh, Robert, uh, um, uh, yeah, Putnam's book, uh, Bowling Alone, if you're familiar with that book, uh, it's, it's a really good little book that basically just shows like organizations in general in the United States have been uh, on a secular decline um, since the, the middle of the 20th century. His, his example in the book that is associated with the title is bowling leagues, right? So basically everything from bowling leagues to unions to everything basically looks like it's declining from the middle of the 20th century. And there's a lot of, you know, hard data on this. Okay. So that's, that's, that's some background factors for you to be aware of if, if that's not obvious to you already. Now, the next important point that you encounter very early in this book that's really important to recognize is that um, the, the motivation or the hook, if you will, for the book is basically his perception. He noticed that among economists, there's a bias in favor of exit. They just kind of assume, oh, if, it, if an organization is declining, the best way to deal with that is by voting with your feet, leaving the organization 
And probably the basic customer relationship is the easiest example to understand, right? If you're, let's say, the user of some corporate commodity that you buy regularly, if it starts to be crappy in some way, if the, if the, the output of that corporation uh, declines and the product that you're buying starts to suck, then you're not going to like write a letter to the you know producer of your Pepsi Cola, right? Um, you're just going to say, okay, this is no good anymore. I'm switching brands. I'm going to a different corporation. That's kind of the the quotidian case of of exit that economists most naturally assume. So whenever there's organizational decline, economists assume exit is just the best and most sensible natural way. To the point that they they never really looked enough at voice, according to Hirschman. And then what Hirschman says is that in political science, it's the exact opposite. It's the assumption is that voice is the best way to deal with organizational decline and exit is actually not only ignored or understudied in political science, but it has a negative connotation. And I think this is very interesting for us today um, because you see this very clearly today. And in, in, in the book, Hirschman writes on page 17, he says that exit has often been branded as criminal for it has been labeled desertion, defection, and treason. Okay, and I think you see this today. It's very clear that if exit is your preferred mode of dealing with an institution or an organization declining, you kind of are looked at as antisocial, right? It's maybe you know, maybe not criminal. Maybe that's been a little a little watered down. But people, you definitely feel a kind of stigma. You feel a kind of um, it's seen as antisocial. It's seen as selfish. It's seen as like you don't care about saving the institution that you're exiting from. Um, it's seen as perhaps irresponsible or dangerous, or in worst case, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're called uh, a fascist or you're called a, um, someone who's going over to the forces of, I don't know, some mysterious, um, antisocial cabal, whether people call that the right wing or, um, you know, whatever. Okay. So, um, you see this, I think very, very clearly today. I think that intuition he had is actually more relevant and kind of more easy to understand and appreciate. It's more prescient than, than um, than anything else, and rather than it kind of being dated, I think it's the, this is the opposite of dated. It's it's really come into relief for us how true this is, and so it, it's just really important because as we kind of break down the model, uh, this kind of bias against exit become it kind of enters the model, right? It it kind of becomes a a cost. It's like a cost that is imposed on people who want to exit in the calculus of whether you should exit or voice. Um, the, the stigma and this this kind of uh, democratic ideological uh, aura around voice as opposed to exit um, enters into the equation of, of people's calculus. And it, and, it, and it probably has some effect on um, why people are exiting or, or using voices. And so just want to you to be aware of that because uh, it's one of the, this is like the, one of the puzzles basically that motivates his research in this book. And it's going to come back and be important for us. Okay, so those are the two kind of uh, prefatory comments in, in the book that, uh, that I wanted to make sure everyone noticed and really appreciates. So let's now move on to kind of the, the bread and butter, the, the main model, if you will, of what he is talking about when he talks about exit versus voice and loyalty. And the basic, at a very high level, the basic idea is that in most cases, outside of strictly economic relationships, like the customer relationship we just talked about, in, in most kind of organizations or institutions that we think of today, um, they kind of have more of the political science flavor, right? The, they're more kind of civic institutions, whether it's academia or the media or nonprofit organizations. 
in these that are kind of the salient ones for, for today that most people will think of when they think of institutional decline, these are going to have um, uh, situations where in general, as decline rises or, or as the organization worsens, people will generally use voice first and the use of that voice will increase as the decline um, sets in or as, as the decline accelerates. And it's only after voice fails that at a certain point, at a certain point, people will choose exit. Okay. So, you know, uh, that, that's the, the basic mental model that he provides for, for, for most of the kind of social political institutions. Okay. In most cases, outside of strictly economic relationships, the expectation is that voice will be used first. It will be used in increasing fashion, uh, corresponding to the acceleration of decline. And only after that voice, uh, only after voice fails beyond a certain point, will people choose exit. Okay. So, um, there are a few wrinkles in there that I think are very interesting and worth, worth highlighting. Um, if, in case you didn't catch them, um, one is that he points out that the effectiveness of voice tends to increase with the volume of voice, but only up to a limit. So at a, at a certain limit, voice has diminishing marginal returns, basically is what he's saying. And, and so to help you understand this, he kind of gives the example of imagine that the employees of, uh, of a firm are giving too much critical feedback to management. You know, a moderate amount of critical feedback might help management, uh, you know, improve their routines, improve the business and the output and everything improves. But too much voice might make the managers, it might demoralize them, it might confuse them, it might have them constantly processing uh, input from, from the lower ranks. And there is a certain amount of voice that can actually drown the decision makers and make improvement uh, less likely. So, so too much voice can actually do be counterproductive. Uh, so, so there's a kind of dose dependence here. This is the first kind of interesting wrinkle on the application of voice. Okay. And this is quite relevant. I think people can already kind of imagine this, so, you know, think about, if you think about like the woke mobs, right. And you see these like videos of university students uh, kind of like screaming every possible um, demand at the uh, university administrators uh, ranging from wanting their physical safety to be enhanced to their emotional safety being enhanced to, you know, better food in the cafeteria. It's like everything, right. At a certain point, if the demands of voice are so severe, it's going to actually just force the administrators to spend all of their time kind of fake signaling uh, responsiveness to these demands. And it's actually going to make the, the output of the organization over time decline even faster, right? So we're already starting to see possible applications of, of some of these intuitions to contemporary affairs, right? Um, moving on, though, there, he also talks about how there is there's often an advantage in taking whichever path, exit or voice, that's least natural to the institutional context. Um, I thought this was an interesting point that he makes. He'll also say later on uh, at the very end of the book, uh, this is on page 125, he'll say that the least natural choice, basically whichever of the two is less uh, normal, uh, is less common, uh, is going to be underestimated. In other words, people are gonna be systematically underestimating the efficacy of the least common method, okay? So in any context where most people will use voice to deal with organizational decline, he's saying um, two things. One, he says the, the potential harm of doing the less common one is going to be much lower. So basically what he's saying is, um, if you're worried about doing real harm to the institution by choosing exit or voice, because um, he's assuming, right, that you want to help the institution. He's assuming you want to save the institution and correct it, um, whether you exit or voice. And what he says is that 
doing the less common one is never really going to do any harm because it's so less common. It's, there's no chance of it a, a hitting on kind of excessive levels in the, in the, in the organization. So if it's really uncommon, leaving is no big deal. Uh, in the worst case, it's not going to do any harm. And I kind of think of academia as an example of this. Like people don't leave ac academia. And if you if you haven't noticed this already, folks, academia is going to be kind of my favorite example, just because it's what I know best. I'm not like picking on academia or anything like that. It's just the institution that I know best. So I, I have the, the most examples and, and, and anecdotes around it. And so like when I decided to leave academia, I certainly didn't have any compunction like, oh, is is my university going to go down the tubes because I'm leaving? No, of course not. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing that can, that, that will, that will carry on by itself and for itself. Um, and so few people exit that there's no moral compunction. There's no like, Oh man, if I exit, is everyone else going to exit? And is the whole thing going to go down the tubes? And then I'm responsible for the failure of a university. No, he's saying in context where one path is not popular and in academia, once you've made it, if you, a tenured professors almost never leave academia. So, um, there was no real risk of me leaving. And, and so he, that's, an, that's a point that he makes. Um, but more importantly, he's, he says that the less common path is often has more efficacy than people will give credit for, than people will realize, okay? Um, and I think, again, that, that, that applies here and, and in the case of academia, and, and we'll talk more about that. Moving more, moving down uh, to the next point. So there's important kind of individual level heterogeneity where different types of people respond differently to the same changes in institutional quality. And this is a really, really important set of wrinkles in the book uh, because what, it, what he's basically saying is that depending on all different types of variables in some contexts, for instance, maybe the, the highest quality members of an organization are the first to exit or in a different context, they're gonna be the first to use voice and the last to exit. And this is gonna be determined by very specific parameters of the situation that you're only really gonna be able to tease out by looking closely at the situation. And so he gives the example of, for instance, look at public schools and the problem of deteriorating public schools. So what he says is that in that context, in large part because there are good private schools available, when public schools deteriorate, the most quality sensitive parents are going to be the first to just exit, okay? Uh, because there's a, there's a superior option that's easily available that they can just switch into at relatively low cost for them if they're, you know, well off or whatever. Okay. So in the, so here, the crucial variable is that there are high quality options. Um, and in that case, the most quality sensitive people are going to be the first to go. But he points out that in contexts where there are no other superior options, well, then the most quality sensitive people will be the last to exit and the most vociferous users of voice because they care most about quality. If there's no other higher quality to be found, they're going to be the most jazzed up about making sure the one thing they have gets fixed. Okay. So there are these, these are just some interesting wrinkles. Um, and these are kind of variables that he wants you to be aware of for making an analysis of any particular institutional context. Namely, the example here is um, what are the outside options like? Um, and how do quality sensitive or the more sophisticated members think differently than the less sophisticated members, okay? And a very interesting subpoint here is that he uh, suggests that there may often be a, a quote-unquote deficiency of exit at the higher end of quality. And, and I just kind of flag that as I think really important uh, for thinking about, we'll return to this when we talk about contemporary institutions. Um, basically just because when super high quality is always intrinsically scarce, right? If you're at the, if you're at, if you're world-class in anything, 
um, whatever institutional context you're in is probably going to be the best game in town. There's not going to be a lot of competitors elsewhere. So what this means is that the highest quality people are often kind of locked in in a way that is suboptimal for them um, because exit does exit's not really an option. Okay, so that's I think a, that that's a very applicable thing that we're seeing today. I think I think that characterizes a lot of what you're seeing today. Um, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that um, moving forward, but that's an important little sub point there. So now let's talk a little bit about loyalty, and loyalty is really kind of what completes his mental model here. Uh, loyalty. A lot of people who don't read the book will kind of talk about loyalty as if it's a third option. You can either be exiting, you can have you know, voice and be kind of trying to fix things from within, um, or you can just choose to be loyal and, and stick it out. Uh, that's really not what he's saying. Loyalty really is not an option or a mode of response. Exit and voice are the two modes of response to organizational decline. Loyalty is like a conditioning variable or a moderator, what we'd call a moderator in social science. It's like a psychological state that um, just shifts uh, whether or not someone is going to choose exit or voice in different contexts. Okay. And loyalty is just what it sounds like. Uh, people will have varying degrees of loyalty to institutions. Right. Um, and one of the things he talks about in this context is initiation costs. Generally, the, the greater the initiation cost, the more loyalty you're going to have. If, uh, and again, uh, just to use my favorite example, academia is an, is an example of extremely high initiation costs, right? Because it takes, you know, like 10 years to get enough education to become a professor if you're lucky. And then you have to, um, you know, uh, really grind and, and publish uh, very aggressively for a few years to get tenure. Um, and so, you know, by the time you've really entered the professoriate, uh, you've paid serious, serious dues for most of your, for, for much of your adult life. Okay. So this tends to increase loyalty and this will have an effect on how people choose to think about the payoff between voice and exit. Um, a few general points here. In general, as loyalty increases, members will prefer voice to exit. It's fairly intuitive, right? If you're if you're deeply embedded and deeply loyal to an institution, when things really start to go wrong, um, you're gonna you're gonna prefer to try to fix it from within rather than exit. Um, loyalty um, functions as a penalty for exit. Basically, is the way to think about it. So the more loyal you are, the more you're the more pain you're gonna pay. The more psychological cost you're gonna pay when you exit. Um, but there is an interesting wrinkle here, a very, a very important wrinkle, I think, um, in the dynamics of how quality decline or organizational decline affects the calculus of loyal members. Um, it changes the curve, if you will. And this is where I want to get into the, the what I think is kind of the, um, the most load-bearing part of the book that really condenses all of the different intuitions and mental models that he builds out uh, informally. He, he kind of compresses it into figure one. Okay. And I want, uh, I want to show you figure one and it's a little complicated. It's, it's really not too, it's not, it's not too bad though. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with formal methods, it's really not that bad. I'll break it down for you, uh, uh, you know, informally and conceptually. So let me just uh, share my screen here. This is that you're looking at is uh, figure one from the book. Uh, oh, wait, hang on. Are you seeing it? Let's see. Yeah, you are. Okay, cool. Uh, you're seeing a graph, right? That uh, it's called figure one loyalist behavior in the face. You see that? Okay, yes, great. Just making sure. So what you're seeing here, and is it all visible? Can you, is it big enough? You can see the text. Okay, awesome. So um, at a high level, the main thing I want you to put your eyes on is just the main diagonal line that's going from the bottom right to the top left, or from the top left down to the bottom right. You see a clear um, kind of diagonal structure, diagonal line. The main diagonal through line basically just represents, I think, a very simple intuition which is that generally as your disagreement with the organization increases, 
you're generally going to be more inclined to speak up against it. Okay. That that's, that's the, the reason there's a general diagonal line. Um, and that's, that's really all that's showing. So at high disagreement on the left, you're going to be high on voice right on the left there and at the top of, of the, the Y axis. Um, now what are all these other things? So it's, it's a little overwhelming at first, but it's not, it's not as bad as it looks. So the, the annotations at the bottom, the different vertical lines with annotations at the bottom with the word X and with the letter X, like XWL, XSI, TX, all of those things, those are um, basically every vertical line is like a, an exit threshold. Okay. So he's basically denoting where people will quit using voice and just decide to leave. Okay. And so um, a real quick um, kind of recap on these is XAL um, right here. Um, XAL is when a member would exit if they have no loyalty. All right. Um, TX is where members would exit. Um, or I'm sorry, TX is where they would threaten exit if voice isn't working. Okay. Um, and XWL over here is when a member exits, even when they have loyalty. Okay. Uh, and finally, XSI right here is the exit threshold for members who have paid severe initiation costs. Okay. So he's basically just trying to show you how these different variables enter into the basic decision to, to voice or exit. And um, ULB he, over here, he doesn't talk about until much later, but this is what he calls unconscious loyal loyalty. Okay. Um, and this is pretty interesting, actually, because what it, what it basically shows is that um, so long as you have unconscious loyalty, you're never going to be speaking up at all, really. You're, it's just not even, you're not even aware of the problems, basically, because you're so drinking from the Kool-Aid. This is actually a pretty interesting point. Uh, it comes up later in the book. Um, it's kind of provocative because it's like, if you believe in, if you believe that there's like systematic psyops going on and you believe that people are really uh, vulnerable to, to, to brainwashing and there are like increasingly systematic efforts to basically shape how people think, you could very well believe that institutional decline today is never going to be responded to adequately simply because you believe that most people are, are under this variable of unconscious loyalty. Um, you know, I, from my time in academia, I think it's fair. I, I think it's fair to say there's, there's a little bit of that. I, I don't think it's, it's the main, the main culprit. Um, I think, I think a, minor, a minority of academics probably have genuine unconscious loyalty where they just love being an academic. They love the institution and the symbolism, and they just are not even aware that, that there's serious decline. I think that's a small minority in academia and other institutions. It might be more in any event. Okay. So the main thing, the main kind of intuitions I want you to grab from this um, is a few things. One is that as you can see at XAL here, when a member would exit, this is where a, a member would exit if they have no loyalty. Um, this is kind of interesting because you notice the diagonal curve, it, it, there's an inflection point here. The diagonal becomes a little steeper after this point. And so what's the, what that's saying to us is that when loyalty is keeping someone locked into an institution, preventing them from exiting, it, it tends to accelerate or, or kind of um, amplify the functional relationship between organizational decline and the, the use of voice. So in other words, when, they're, when you're staying in an organization because you're loyal and you're not leaving because you're loyal, things start to get a little heated, right? It's like every further decline makes you a little bit more worried because uh, you're, you're locked in now. You feel kind of threatened. And so um, every further decline makes you kind of more uh, aggressively use voice is what he's saying by this, by this inflection point in the, in the line. And finally, um, if you go up to TX, this threat, this threat of exit, it's represented as a, as a bump up, a, a kind of step change. Uh, a level change or a step function. 
And this is like a, a sudden in- usage of voice where you're like, hey, if we don't fix this, I'm leaving. That's like a, a bump up in, in, the, in the magnitude of voice in a way. And then the final thing I want you to, to appreciate here, which is very interesting and I think kind of provocative is this curved line. Okay. This curved line shows the dynamics for loyalists with severe initiation costs. Okay. And what this is basically saying is that at low levels of quality decline or at low levels of organizational decline, voice is going to be lower than it would be otherwise. It's in other words, highly loyal people who paid initiation costs are going to have a lot of patience in the early days of organizational decline. They're not going to speak up in the early days of decline because they're so loyal and because they paid such high initiation costs. Um, But when they do start to speak up, as this curve starts to increase, notice that what this, that, that curve, the curvilinear nature of this line is saying that when they do start to speak up, it's going to be more vociferous than otherwise. It's going to be more aggressive than otherwise. And that actually loyalists with severe initiation costs are going to exit sooner than uh, loyalists without initiation costs. And that's the delta between this point right here and this point right here. Um, So this is very interesting for thinking about institutional context today, because what it means is maybe we're seeing surprisingly low levels of discomfort within certain failing institutions uh, because there's a high initiation cost and because there's loyalty to those institutions. But when it does kick off, it could kick off in a more rapid and sudden cascade than it would otherwise. And again, my, my example here would be academia. This to me rings true when it comes to academia. I think the within academic institutions, the people who are truly loyal, who've been in the, in the game for a long time and have paid high, high initiation costs, they're, we're still, they're still, a lot of them are still kind of down at this level. They're like, um, they're, they're, they're trying to ignore things. They're trying, they don't want to get too serious about the, this, the, the, the problems in the institution because they're so loyal and because they paid such high initiation costs. It's like unthinkable to them that they would really start to make noise, serious noise or, or protest. Um, but if that's correct, then that what Hirschman's model helps us see is that when, if it keeps getting worse and worse, places like academia might see the most sudden and, and kind of uh, significant exit possibly is what this is saying. Okay. So who knows if that is the right application, uh, that's anyone's guess, but that's just to kind of, uh, unpack the main mental model here, I would say. Um, and there's some more wrinkles to all of that, but, uh, but that I'm, I've basically covered most of most of the main, uh, the bread and butter of the book. I want to basically just leave you with a few final, uh, wrinkles or implications, the little kind of throwaway remarks or ideas in the book that I thought were particularly interesting for you to be aware of or to think about. Um, one thing that's not in the graph explicitly, but he talks about later on page 97 is that you can also, organizations can also impose exit costs. Okay. And exit costs are going to generally, meaning, uh, if you exit bad things happen to you, there are different forms of them. It can be shaming, right? People can just like make fun of you or call you a loser or call you evil or, um, call you a right-wing fascist or what, what have you. There are all different ways organizations can impose exit costs. Uh, one is shaming, like I just said, but there are in some organizations, it's like financial penalties, um, or, or ostracism or things like this. Okay. Um, and what exit costs do, the more you impose exit costs, the more you shift the exit thresholds to the left, basically, on the graph, that is. So, so it basically, exit costs will postpone the, the, the threshold at which members exit.
for the obvious reason uh, that it's it's more painful. It's harder uh, to pay those costs. All right. Um, things have to be really, really bad for it to be a, a rational calculus to choose to exit in the face of, of exit costs. Okay. Um, so that's something to be aware of. You might think about how do different institutions impose exit costs, right? Um, there are interesting examples of that again, in the, especially in the kind of woke academia uh, context. Um, you know, you do you do see the application. You do see pe basically people on the inside of institutions systematically trying to increase exit costs for people that they uh, to, to to stem the flow of of exiters, or at least that's one possible hypothesis, right? Um, a final idea here is that um, well, maybe two final ideas is that that the collapse of an exited institution can have negative consequences on someone who exits. And if that is the case, the situation has to be theorized as one in which full exit is not really possible. Or on page 100, he says, full exit is impossible. If leaving the institution is going to have negative effects for you down the line that you can't escape. That, that basically means exit is not an option. And this is, again, a really, really important wrinkle because I would argue in many contexts today, this does, this does apply, basically. Um, and I think there's an interesting example in social class, uh, especially. So when I think about academia, like if, if, you know, if you're a professor, right, and you've been in the game for a long time, you've paid very high initiation costs, you love the institution and the symbolism of what academia represents and the status that it has in, in society. And also your, both of your parents are professors and both of their parents are professors. And this is like a non-trivial number of people in academia have this kind of social family background. Okay. You can make a good argument that exit is not possible for you because if you were to quit academia, if you were to exit the institution, it's going to, in a way, kind of harm the 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 whole social status of of your entire family in a way. Um, if if you if people exit if people exit academia and the institution actually goes away, um, this would be a, a cost to you in other ways down the line uh, because of this this kind of deeper. Um, uh, stacking of allegiances and kind of social class uh, markers. Okay, so I think again, I think this is a really important and relevant. He doesn't say this exactly. This this point about social class is mine, but I think it, you see this very clearly in how people choose to leave or not leave institutions. Um, there are weird kind of hidden uh, investments um, that are not necessarily talked about, but that can lock people into institutions in, in ways that they don't necessarily even talk about. All right. And then finally, there is unconscious loyalty. We talked a little bit about that. That's the ULB on the on the graph, which which I discussed. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You made it all the way to the very end. So you must really like the show. In that case, I would be super grateful if you'd be so kind to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is go to otherlife.co slash review. That's otherlife.co forward slash review. And it'll send you an Apple Podcasts. Just leave a review. You can be honest. Tell me what you really think. I'd really appreciate it because it'll help other people find the show and I'm really trying to grow out the podcast. So thanks for listening and thank you for leaving a review. I really appreciate it.